Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Taufik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Hello, dearly beloveds, and welcome to another episode of the Roots of the Spirit podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. For those of you who have been along this journey, it's almost coming up on one year. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you're just now joining, I'm just as grateful. All around the world, yesterday I looked at my statistics and I have new listeners from Colombia, South Africa, Vietnam. In an upcoming episode, I'll be going in depth with a lot of the lessons learned, just what my experience has been over the journey of creating the podcast last January 2019. Since we've last been in touch, I had a very big, beautiful milestone birthday. Spirit Amber Tafik is 40 years old. When I say that, I'm like, wait, when did this happen? How did this happen? Have I really been roaming this beautiful earth for 40 years? I suppose so. (laughs) It's been a journey, definitely has. Switching gears, I'll now introduce you to today's guest. Golf curator Latoya Finney is passionate, focused, and purposeful. These three words describe her as she blazes new trails in the world of golf. As a former technology project manager and senior business analyst, She's worked with companies like Goldman Sachs, Barclays, and Apollo Global Management. She has a Bachelor of Science in Information Systems from Long Island University, CW Post, and a Master of Science in Computer Science from NYU Tandon School of Engineering. And a passion for golf led her to play on amazing courses in Malaysia, Scotland, Ireland, Barbados, Spain, and Dubai. These experiences left a real impression on her after 20 years of building a career. She decided that it was time for a change. Please join me in welcoming LaToya Finney to the podcast. Hi, LaToya. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm thrilled to have you on my show. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here today. I love to be able to talk about how we became acquainted. In the case of you and I, my husband, Hisham, who has a few diehard hobbies. In the winter, he's chasing the snow as an avid snowboarder. And in the warmer season, he's golfing like all the time. Over the last couple of years, he's been playing locally at various courses. And along that journey, he met you. And through conversations, we had the opportunity to meet and get together, which was such a beautiful conversation and we had a chance to talk and I was just intrigued by your journey. As a former technology project manager and senior business analyst with companies like Goldman Sachs, Barclays, and Apollo Global Management, to playing golf around the world, such awesome countries that we'll get into in a bit, to co-founding the Black Jewels Ladies Golf Association in New York. So the way that my mind works is I seek out inspiration in all facets of my life, and especially with the frame and intention of uprooting racism and removing obstacles and discriminatory barriers so that we can strive to be a more free society and open up access to aspects of life that have been strategically remaining predominantly white. So when you and I had a conversation about your passion for golf, I was so moved and was incredibly intrigued by your perseverance through corporate America to what you're doing now. I am so excited for my listeners to have this opportunity and treat to get to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you. So Latoya, where were you born and raised? And can you please share with us anything you'd like about your family roots? Sure, absolutely. I was born and raised in Long Island, Long Beach, Long Island to be specific. And that's like the city by the sea out in Nassau County. You know, my family is originally from North Carolina, but my mom and dad were raised in New York in the Long Island area. And, you know, growing up, I just had, I always had an interest in activities. 
So my mother had me involved in like ballet and tap and all types of dance and music classes. So I, I definitely was a very active child. I wasn't super athletic, but eventually I found myself playing basketball in high school and junior high school because my aunt and uncle, they were actually very good and they were like all stars. And I didn't quite inherit that gene. So while I was decent, I just did not have the skill set that they had. And, you know, I ended up going to college in Long Island as well. I went to Long Island University at CW Post. But what I found with my family, you know, being born in the South, we had a very traditional upbringing where, you know, went to church every Sunday, um, always spent Sundays together having dinner at my grandmother's house where she always cooked. So I know that we made it there often. Um, my mother would also cook dinner sometimes, but there was always some type of community family gathering at my grandmother's house. So it was the social place to be. And when I think about all of the memories, the key for me was we were always, me and my sister, I have a younger sister, and growing up, we were always involved in activities in very diverse communities. And I, I remember that, and I took that into my professional career. Do you know why your family moved from the South? Sure. It was opportunity. My grandmother used to come to New York um, during the summers to work. She had a cousin that was older that was um, in Brooklyn. So we originated from a small town called Belvedere, North Carolina, which really was one street. And now it has a name. And it's called, I, I can't even remember the name right now, but it, the street has a name now. And it's available and visible on Google Maps, where historically you just had to know which tree to turn by. But um, my grandmother, she would come to New York to work in the summer cleaning people's homes. And eventually she relocated to New York and started to bring up her nieces, her nephews to work every summer. And eventually they migrated to New York as well. And a majority of our family settled in this Nassau County area by way of you know, my grandmother bringing people up every summer and they would stay with her and work. And it was really about opportunity. There was also not a lot of, um, uh, let's just say if, if racism is our conversation or our thought, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for people of color in the rural South of, and especially not in North Carolina. And so in New York, she had the opportunity to work and work as hard as she wanted and earn as much money as she wanted. So you said that in your activities or extracurriculars were immersed in a diverse atmosphere. One of the questions that I ask all of my guests is, when is the very first time that you became aware of race? Ooh, that is a good question. So the area I grew up in was predominantly Jewish, and it was maybe 80% white, 20%, not even 20% black, and or 20% minority, because that would include Asian, Latino, black, just everyone else. I think I was in fourth grade, and I remember we were in a I don't know, like elementary school class and one of the young girls that was in my classroom said something about my hair. And I remember thinking, well, my hair's not different from yours. It's just, and we had this like debate. And I remember going into the bathroom and really like examining myself and looking at myself in the mirror thinking, well, I don't quite know. And then I thought about it, I'm like, oh, well, her eyes are blue and her hair is blonde and it's super straight and mine is big poofy ponytails with barrettes and, but I mean, it's still hair. And I didn't really look at it from that perspective until that day. And I remember being in fourth grade and I remember the day like it was yesterday. Wow. So after that experience in your young mind, how did that resonate with you in your life? I think if I, if I really were to be honest, I know that I had a conversation with my mother because those were the kind of conversations that I felt comfortable having with her. Like, why is this different? Or what is happening? And I think when I recall my childhood, my family says I was a very inquisitive person. Like, everything that would occur, I would have to understand why. Like, anything that happened, anything that happened on TV and the news, whether we needed to go upstairs or downstairs, if we were going to eat this food and if it was presented in this way, I questioned everything and everything. My favorite word was why. So my question to my mother was more like, mom, why, why does she feel that way? Why, why does she think that I look different or why, why did she say we were different? And I, and honestly, I cannot remember the conversation or the response that my mom had for me, but I knew from that day on, I didn't like that girl anymore. 
I remember that part. And I, I thought about, I thought about it, but I didn't really act on it or do anything. I just didn't like that girl anymore. Do you recall what your aspirations were, like what you were thinking of in terms of what you wanted to go to college for or what you aspired to do with your career down the line? Absolutely not. I knew that I wanted to be a fancy business lady that carried a suitcase and wore a suit. And I didn't know what that was or what that meant. And I just knew that that looked like career success. I knew I didn't want to be a teacher because whenever we had a substitute teacher, people treated them poorly. And I knew that that wasn't the career path that I wanted. I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. So I was very good at knowing what I did not want. However, when I was in school, I thought about law as a career and I really researched it as an option. I thought about things that were scientific and technical, but not really understanding what that looked like because I grew up in an era way before we were really looking at computer science as an option, as technology, as solutions. But I like the concept of technology. And I remember being the person designated to always set all of the clocks because that was my responsibility. And I remember that being like exciting to me to try to figure out how things work. And my dad, whenever like Christmas came, he'd always make jokes that I was the only child that wanted to read all of the instructions before we played with the toy. So we got the Atari and I went to sit down and understand how did this thing work before we were going to sit down and play. I wouldn't let anyone touch it before I could read the, the instructions and understand how it was going to work. You weren't quite sure. I love the way you described a fancy business lady. After high school, you went on to pursue your Bachelor of Science in Information Systems from Long Island University at CW Post Campus and a Master of Science in Computer Science from NYU Tandon School of Engineering. What was it like being a Black woman in these various fields of study? It was lonely. And I honestly focused on just the work and getting the work done. And so I really didn't feel ostracized because the work was so challenging that we just wanted to survive and get through and be on our career journeys and really understand the content so that we can move into these workplaces. So my, my color and my race and being a woman, those things weren't necessarily detrimental as far as I knew. What I didn't realize is that I would struggle with professors that didn't think I belonged. My peers and my classmates, we all were just kind of banding together, working together to get through some of our team assignments and class assignments. And we would have study groups because the content was challenging. But what I didn't recognize was the lack of um, patience on the part of some of the professors. However, I had one or two professors that to this day, I would, I would definitely credit my ability to stay in that program to them. I, I definitely had two professors that were really supportive of my presence there. And even when I struggled, they gave me the encouragement and the support that I needed to keep pushing and trying harder and ensuring that like I didn't give up and just try, try to do something else. So what type of energy was being emitted that you felt like some of your professors were treating you as if you didn't belong? It's, it's so hard to really put into words when you feel a sense of otherness. And sometimes it's not like the young girl when we were in fourth grade explicitly saying that I'm different from her and that there's a difference. And I don't even know if we went any further into like whether there's a good or a bad, but when you're in a classroom and you're trying to understand content and you're answering questions or you're asking questions, there's a way that, or tone and a language that makes you feel more comfortable in asking in asking more questions and I'm, I've always been a questioning person and I've always been a person that wanted to understand so it was just in line with who I who I am as a person in general and I still am like that so when I think about and, and like I don't need to name names of those professors but when I think about how they responded to the questions or how they respond to me as an individual I didn't feel welcome I didn't feel like that was a course that I needed to stay in. I didn't feel like if this is a represent if this is a representation of what my career will be, I'm already unhappy. Like it already feels frustrating and not really um, enjoyable. And the irony is, I remember having one of those days where the class was it wasn't really like an enjoyable moment. The class was way too early in the morning for the teacher to be that you know disgruntled. And maybe that's why he was upset because it was like an 8 a.m. class. I feel like. It was those, it was that particular class in that moment. I went to my independent study. No, I'm sorry, I went to my work study because I had a work study um, job at that time. And there was a, a black man 
who fixed the computers and his name is Donald Mann. And I'll never forget, he said to me, you know, sometimes people don't want you here and you have to keep fighting. And the fact that you're in that program, you need to just keep going. And the words of encouragement that he gave me in that moment, that allowed me to persist and hold my head high and just keep moving forward and just keep studying until I got it. And that's how I graduated. That gives me chills. Because there's so much power in that, like up against all of that adversity. Yeah, and there were no professors. Like I can think about my four years in that school. I only had one professor of color and she taught African dance. Hmm. What was the racial and ethnic makeup of the staff and of your degree program? Um, it was primarily white and I actually had two people of color as a professors. I had a calculus teacher who was, um, he was African and I remember him because he was the only other diverse uh, professor. I had one female professor in my computer science program. She was um, Dr. Fetterman and she was one of the other individuals that was very encouraging that, you know, encouraged me to volunteer, participate in Society of Women Engineers. She was a huge advocate of just getting more women into computing and computer science. And so I remember her presence making a difference. And even though I noticed that like, she wasn't respected by some of the male students mm -hmm. or some of the male professors, but I respected her because I knew what it took for her to be there. And I, in that moment, it was definitely like, as I reflect back, representation does matter. It, it's so important. Me seeing her in that role, she was like the head of the department for that area of, that, that we were covering. And she wasn't the head of the entire department, but for the subset of the content that we were covering, she was the head of that. And it, it, was, it was her presence there that also like allowed me to focus on some of the content that I was struggling with, but her presence allowed me to keep working at it. And, and I'm, I'm saying this in a, a very weird way, but I had to take a withdrawal that first semester. And it was her that encouraged me to keep pursuing it, to sign up for the next class, even though I didn't finish the first class, and that I would get that content and I would need to work twice as hard. I'd need to re-audit her previous class and then take the other class with her and learn both, both um, classes at the same time. And and I remember like no other teacher is going to let me do that, but she did. I'm just thinking if your experience was that, what was her experience like a couple decades prior and just the weight of that, that she may have felt a responsibility to help you navigate that because she already knew what that experience was like. And, and then for you to have gotten what you needed through not just a presence, but also she, she took you under her wing, but also just the visual representation and how that manifests itself and, and lifts us up. You know what I mean? Just, it's like, you might see somebody, but then that extra layer of them taking the time to encourage you and inspire you and showing you the strategy to move forward. That's amazing. Yeah, it, you know, and it's funny because I was embarrassed because one, I'm taking the class twice. So no one knew that I was doing that. I really kept that to myself. But I always had um, respect for her. And in the moments where you're with your peers and they're saying anything that was negative, it was my moment to defend her. And I didn't have to say why I was defending her, I just did. Mm -hmm. And I, I just knew that like, it doesn't matter what she did for me, it's just that I know for certain, and I can attest to the character of this woman, and I know that what you're saying is not her. What she, she is an excellent professor, she has worked hard, and she makes sure that we are going to learn this content. And I remember some of the guys saying that she favors the woman. I'm like, who the two women that are in this class? It was like hmm. me and an Asian girl. There's nobody else in the class. So who are you saying? What are you, what are you saying? Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, I, and I will call people out on that because only one guy said that. And he was just, let's just say fast forward. I wonder what he's doing now. <laughs> <laughs> so after graduation, talk to me about your, your work in corporate America. Sure, like, and it's funny, after graduation, or even like those few months leading up to graduation, I did not know what I was going to do like work-wise. Like I knew I had this computer science degree, I knew the computer information systems degree, and I knew like computers are important in corporations. However, it was very ambiguous as to like, what is a career in computing actually like 
what does that look like? Like, what is your job description that you're looking for? So I would just, I, I took my resume and I remember the newspaper came and it had like the top 100 companies in Long Island. And this is how, this is kind of old school. I mailed my resume to every single company on that list. Nice. Because I was like, I don't know. I mean, I know I had internships, but when it came time to like look for the actual job of the thing I would be doing for the rest of my life, I had no idea which thing I would want to do. Like, do I want to be in the database server room? Do I want to like write programs? Is there something in between that I could do? And the careers weren't as clear as they are now. There was just like computer programmer, very vague careers. And I first started working at this company called Simple Technologies, which was in far out in Long Island, but it was an engineering company and they made barcode scanners. And in my role as a database application specialist, I would develop applications to help improve the manufacturing process and really focus on automating a lot of manual processes. So that was still the era of paper. And so a lot of the teams were trying to optimize and reduce not necessarily reduce staff, but really optimize their processes to reduce error and really try to get all of the information from paper into computer systems and really looking at like, how do we streamline some of this information so we could simplify what we're doing and just get this manufacturing process um, working faster or better and more efficient. So it was like the beginning of automation and like the Y2K bug hadn't happened yet. So there's there was a lot of coding and work that had to be to, done to make sure like systems were compliant. So it was a it was a really good opportunity to like get my foot in a technical space in a technical company. That's amazing. I can only imagine just like the learning curve when Y two K came about. Yeah, it was it was excellent. Actually, it was probably like I felt like we were like superheroes. We were out there trying to save companies before this unexpected thing. Like the whole world was going to shut down, and we just didn't know what it was. That I mean, that was like the media's perspective <laughs> of it. But the reality is, you're like you just need to change things from a two digit year to a four digit year. We'll find all the code where these things are referring to two digits, so that it can make sure that all of the, the systems are not like randomly shutting down. But the reality was it was a little bit more complicated than that, but I oversimplified it. But ultimately that was really what the gist of our work was. How do we make this stuff work with four digits years? Hilarious. I like the way you described that. It makes sense in my mind because I am technologically, I need work in that area. Just going back a bit, I understand that you were introduced to golf while you were in college. Can you describe that experience of your first exposure? Sure, yeah. Golf. So it's funny, like, I remember finding golf courses near our junior high school, and I remember asking one of the gym instructors, could I try out for the golf team? And he's like, no, it's only for the guys. I was like, okay, but I literally just found this pink ball and he's like, no, the team is just for guys. And I remember that was my first like experience with rejection in golf. So fast forward, I'm in college and Tiger Woods is like a phenom. He's a household name. I didn't know him before that moment, but we're in like school and they're, they're talking about this, this phenomenal golfer. And I remember looking at my curriculum and looking at what I needed to graduate and I needed one credit. And when I went through like all of the offerings and all of the, the bulletin and looked through all of the class and the curriculum that was being offered. Everything was like three or four credits, but golf was one credit and I needed one credit to graduate. And I'm like, this is excellent. It's like serendipitous. If anything, I wanted to learn about golf. Tiger Woods seems phenomenal. No one will teach me and I have the opportunity to learn golf. So I needed one credit to graduate and golf was there as an option at CW Post. So I took golf. Wow. Yeah, and, that, and that's how I got exposed to the sport generally. And the irony of that is, one, I was in this class, it was majority like football players, so it's not like I was in the class with golfers. And it was taught by, like, one of the gym instructors. Like, I don't even know. She wasn't, she was, av she was an avid golfer, but she wasn't necessarily, like, a professional golfer. And I remember us hitting golf balls at the football field and her explaining distance based on, the yardages of the football field and that's how we kind of learned the basics of the sport and we would go to like where the track team did their long jump and that's where we practiced sand traps we never actually made it to the physical golf course so I still had a lot more growing and learning to do I didn't know that yet that's interesting to kind of simulating it right prior yeah. to into the course so did you fall in love with it then or did that come later 
that came later. So at that point, I knew I wanted to play, but I didn't know like how to get from that class onto a real course. And it was like, not clear. What do I do next? How do I like get to the course? What is the process to do that? And one day I was with one of my sorority sisters. I'm a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And we were, she was just shopping and she was buying a golf glove. And I asked her, well, why are you buying that golf glove? And she mentions, you know, I'm actually thinking about learning to play golf and I know I need a glove. And that began the journey of her, myself, and another person into this space called Black Jewels Golf Association, where we founded that to give women of color an opportunity to learn the game of golf. I'm so excited to dive into that. I want to talk about your experience in corporate America, and then we will interweave your experience with golf. Sure. What was your journey from your first job into the next phase of your career? First, I, I knew working out in Long Island at the like very end, almost near Riverhead, which is not the quality of life that I wanted. I wanted to be closer to the city, closer to my friends. I wanted to be able to have like a social life after work. And I also wanted to be in finance and I wanted to work on Wall Street and be in banking. And I knew that um, being in manufacturing, while that was my first job, wasn't necessarily going to get me there. And it's interesting. I think that throughout my career, I've had angels. So there are demons and angels in everything that we do. But in my career, in those moments where I needed guidance, Sometimes it just would appear, and it appeared in sometimes in managers and colleagues. And in, in this particular firm, I had a manager, and um, her name was Karen Nust, and she said, you should just go back to school and get your master's. And I'm like, why? She's like, why not? And it was just the simplest answer, why not? And that's how I ended up pursuing my master's in computer science. She said, the company you'll pay for, why wouldn't you do it? Nice. But it was really, that was a test. And as I thought about it, I thought, well, why wouldn't I want to do something that would position me for a greater success and giving me the opportunity to learn additional programming languages that were relevant in banking? And that really was what allowed me to move into my next role because I needed to know Java programming. And this particular program had an emphasis on Java programming. And that was one of the programming languages that was widely used as, in addition to me having the database experience in financial firms at that time. What was your experience day to day in that environment? Like, what was the atmosphere like? So when I think about manufacturing, it was, it wasn't very diverse, but I would say that Simple was probably one of the more diverse companies that I had worked at during the time. So I thought that when I got there, there weren't really any women of color. There was like one other woman and she wasn't in technology. I, I, I feel like my professional career in that particular role was very similar to how my college career was. So my academic time, the demographic looked similar in my workforce. So I wasn't unprepared for that. And maybe I thought that there would be more people of color. And it was a, it was definitely a learning curve because like my grandmother dressed me for my first day of work and having her not having worked at an office you know, I wore my Easter outfit to work on first day. And I was like, when I look back, I'm like, someone should have told me that a lavender suit and cat leather shoes was just not appropriate for a corporate environment where engineers wear khaki pants and polo shirts. But nobody could have prepared me for that moment. Maybe they could have, but I just wasn't necessarily participating in the programs, which are phenomenal programs now that students should take advantage of that prepare you for the workforce in ways that I was not prepared. If you were to have a private conversation behind closed doors about what your experience was like as a Black woman in that world, how would that conversation go? So my experience as a Black woman, I think in that first role, when I first graduated from college, one of the major things that I observed was I knew I was paid less than my peers. And I remember getting like this ridiculous bump in salary and I went to my manager and I said, well, I noticed that I got this raise and it's not bonus time. So what do I owe that honor to? And he just said, you know, we wanted to pay you for the role that you're in. So who knows? I mean, I feel like that was probably the first time that something was righted or addressed without me needing to step in and be the advocate. Do you feel that you were discriminated against in one or more of those companies? You know, it's so, it's, it's a good question. I think that discrimination in pay, so pay disparity exists. And 
It's a good question. Do you call that discrimination when two people do the same job or similar jobs, have maybe similar backgrounds and experience, but they get paid different mm. salaries? And companies will not call that discrimination. So what is the word? What is the word for that? What, I, what I've observed and witnessed, and I find it, it's interesting. I've seen companies try to intentionally differentiate between roles so that they can justify why the pay is not equitable. So they'll say, oh, person A is doing this, but person B is doing this. And if you look at the skill set of each person, you'll realize that they're either very similar or one person has far more years of experience and has the ability to be more um, versatile in their skills. They're very like flexible and you know, able to pick up and learn anything. They're very um, unique in that skill set. Or you know, they're, they're like a one-trick pony. They can do this one thing. And I feel like what I've seen companies do is instead of having a standard of job descriptions, they try to put these smaller nuanced words to justify why there's a differential in the pay. And I think that the challenge that individuals going into these workforces have, or into the workforce in general, is that there's not transparency in that. So where we benefit now with like the New York state laws is that there's a, a movement to try to fight for equal pay amongst women or get women to pay, pay parity. And I think that that visibility allows people to see like, okay, I get paid this, but this is the role. And I think that's the opportunity to really look at specifics of the role and understand how it differs from everyone else in the firm. Because when you get there, you just, you don't just do your job. You do whatever's asked of you sometimes. And in my roles, I've always just wanted to learn more and do more. Like I've always been a person that wanted to understand how things work. Just I think I've always just been that person. And in doing that, I'm always willing to take on more responsibility because I just want to know how to do everything. And then I want to automate it and I want to make it better. And, and that's kind of just been the, the span of my career in all of these different spaces. But regarding the pay question, if we're doing the same job or we're doing similar jobs or the outcomes of our role result in the same you know, benefit, Mm-hmm. which is like automation, then there should be some transparency around that. And I think that the better companies do a good job of making sure that there's no question and there's no ambiguity and there's no obfuscation. Like they're, they're not trying to obfuscate, I think I said that word right, but they're trying to hide and cover what the pay is for the work because they want you to do your best. That, that would probably be the best companies. When did you leave and why? Yeah, so I've been, I stayed in finance for about 15, I want to say I'm at my 15, somewhere between 15 and 18 years. I think I stopped counting after a while, but I think it's been about 15 to 18 years. And I left because, one, I didn't necessarily feel like the work I was doing made a difference in my life personally. And I felt like God had called me to do something greater. I also left because I just didn't find that the spaces I was in was diverse enough and I didn't feel like diversity and inclusion was, it was more of like a reaction instead of like an existence. Like if you have to say diversity and inclusion, you're probably not the most diverse or inclusive environment. It should just be. It's like as, as air exists and as water flows, so there is diversity. I walk down the street and I see a wealth of people. And they're all different colors and ages and shapes and sizes. And they're all going different places. That's what diversity and inclusion like really looks like. There's a new wave of, and the language changes. It's changed probably four or five times in the, in the journey through my career. Diversity, inclusion. I'm a big proponent of anti-racism. And I don't see that being rolled out in corporate America or in various organizations. Some are. But it's a deliberate practice and understanding and kind of framework to, because the word racism is in there, is to acknowledge the racism that exists and deliberately, strategically work against it. Because it was engineered, strategically engineered, but we have not strategically um, reverse engineered it. So I'm wondering, what is your, what are your thoughts around kind of the pulse of diversity and inclusion? in those spaces that you were in and is it authentic is it is change happening i mean so your question if i understand it is how genuine are these diversity and inclusion initiatives or are they just a check the box activity precisely <laughs> yeah and so while i have a few friends that are in hr 
my experience, it felt like the people that are doing the work might genuinely feel that it's important and feel like they're making a difference in the company by creating a more inclusive environment. But you're right, the word racism is not part of the language, nor it's, it's like unconscious bias. And I was like, well, what about outright racism? What if, you're, what if your bias is really like conscious, like you deliberately and intentionally derailed that person's career because you didn't like them. And maybe you didn't like them because they made you feel a sense of insecurity. And when you get to the root cause of your insecurity, you say your insecurity is based on the fact that you thought you were better than that person because of your skin color. That would be called racism. But that requires like, you'd have to have therapists and offices, people. It's like alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA. Like you have to first start with saying, I think I have a problem or admitting that you have a problem. And with racism, it doesn't, there's just so much ambiguity around the language. While I can easily identify moments where I feel like I'm being treated, my otherness, I feel like I'm being treated other. It's that same thing that I experienced in fourth grade where I was explicitly told, you are different. You are different than me. And I was like, I thought we were just all fourth graders here in class. You know, didn't really, it didn't resonate to me in that moment. And I didn't, I just didn't know what, what that was. But I think when we look at these corporate spaces and the, these environments, racism isn't part of the conversation because that would be, a person needing to acknowledge that a disparate treatment as a result of a otherness that is associated with a construct that was created to make certain people feel better than others is being used to discriminate and create a non-inclusive environment. Like, whoa, that's a mouthful. How do you teach someone how to fix that in a corporate environment? I remember coming into one company and someone telling me that I was a double check the box. And I'm like, oh, black female, ouch. That hurt. But what do you say? There is a lot of latent racism that exists in corporate America. And I think that that is just the, the root of that is that a lot of those spaces weren't designed with us in mind or with the intention of being inclusive because some of those spaces were built on the back of slaves. So the reality is to, to say that you're going to have that same individual leading a team, maybe it's foreign. And even though we're in a day and age that's far later and many, many years removed, the mentality has been passed from generation to generation. And so I think the challenge with like our younger selves is that when we witness it, you have to decide if you're going to fight it or you're going to keep moving. And I think the challenge is sometimes, sometimes the fight is not worth it, but sometimes it is because you're setting up the next generation for success. Absolutely. I had a conversation with a woman of color it, who, as she described, she she was vague and she said corporate America. So I don't know like specifically what area. However, she mentioned something about her feeling like it made more sense for her to straighten her hair in the workplace. And I know that experience is a result of kind of the what's in the air and um, the expectations and the culture, air quotes. So can you describe what your experience was day to day and the microaggressions, which I also feel like is a very soft word to describe how people are treated and isolated and ostracized. But day-to-day, -day, a description of that culture. Yeah, I mean, whew, that is heavy. Um, so microaggressions. You know, microaggressions are something that, while we experience it daily, it's like a dog whistle. No one in a corporate space will acknowledge a microaggression, even though it is a, it's like a, like someone pricking you with a needle repeatedly. And at some point you're like, this hurts and it's painful and I need to stop it. And I need to like avoid this. And her straining her hair, straining her hair might've been that result of, I just don't want to deal with the conversation anymore around my hair. Like, I just don't want to entertain it. And I just want my work to be the focus of the conversation or the quality of the sales that I've, or deals that I've closed or whatever it is. You want the focus to be on the work and not on me and my person and who I am. And when I think of microaggressions, I think that there's not an acknowledgement or an awareness. If you want to do good diversity and inclusion training, the conversation would center around microaggressions that are experienced by every community because I'm certain that the Asian community experiences them 
with like the assumptions that, oh, you're going to be great in mathematics or you're, you should go, you know, be an accountant or whatever the generalization is that's used for a particular community. I'll never forget. We were in the office and one person said, oh, we're going to have Chinese food for lunch. And the Asian guy said, well, I just call it food, but sure, whatever. And I thought, there's one. That's a, that would be a microaggression right there. That, that's uncomfortable because I'm not like, I'm going to go have soul food for lunch. I'm just going to have lunch. And it, it's just interesting how one person's experience can be very different, but we don't have that open and transparent conversation. I've experienced in my day to day, I've experienced people telling me that they like my hair a different way. I was wearing it natural. Um, a woman told me, I like your hair the other way. And I'm like, you mean straight? And she's like, yeah. I said, that's nice. And I just went about my business because I won't see you combing my hair in the morning, but this is how I want to wear my hair. Um, and it's small things like I remember receiving a review and the review had all of the dog whistle language. And it's like, and I know HR has to look at this stuff. It had, she's militant. She is aggressive. She is like, name any word that is associated with like microaggressions. And you start to wonder like, well, what is the training? But then what is the perspective of the individual that felt comfortable enough to put this on a paper as a representation? And I was like, that, that is a, an environment that probably was not best for me. And I, I think that where I feel a certain amount of freedom, but then a certain amount of guilt is in exiting corporate America to pursue my passion. I feel a certain level of obligation to the generations behind me or the, that are coming through into the career force to continue to be there because what I failed to see in my career, and I don't really see a lot of it now, I don't see a lot of women of color in leadership roles in many of the companies that I had left. And when I think about my exodus, because it's totally an exodus, like biblical in every sense, but I think about, am my failing, is, is my exit failing the generation that's coming up behind me and not giving them, are they going to get stuck at the same place or are they not going to have someone advocating for them and helping to, to keep pulling them up and helping them navigate some of these more complex spaces where your presence has not been there. And so there's never needed to be a conversation about microaggression. So a person can't know about a microaggression if no one has ever called them on it. Mm. So there's like a dual responsibility in that case. Like I can't expect you to know the things that frustrate me, but when I say it and I express it and we talk about it, I don't expect to see it happen again. And I expect that to be shared to say like this, you know, actually that let's do some sensitive sensitivity training or some type of cultural awareness training so that we're all familiar. But then people feel ostracized. I just read an article that I think it was Power Fly put about our white men feel left out of DNI initiatives. I'm like, I didn't read it yet because I wasn't sure I was ready to read it. But that was what the article was about. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> We're looking at 400 years of oppression. I mean, literally marking the 400 year of enslavement, the wars and the building of this country and segregation and reconstruction and lynchings and intimidation. And here we are like 45 to 50 years later. And the language, the culture, the everything is catered toward, built for white people. And so anything that challenges that or points out that, no, 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 like the language that you're using is actually pretty racist. And that's why I have a thing about microaggressions because they are an indicator of macroaggressions. They're racism. They're racism in kind of like bite-sized delivery. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But I, I wonder, so I, I don't know, I can't say I'm versed enough in tools that have been used to address this in corporate spaces and how they how microaggressions derail inclusion so like if they're like it's counterintuitive right if you if you have an inclusion project or initiative or in theme but you have microaggressions and you never talk about that the microaggression prevents you from having an inclusive environment it it, it doesn't they don't work together it's like oil and water if we're just looking at the surface and we're not looking at what's below the water of an iceberg, then we're intentionally missing the mark because we should know better at this point. So you raise a very good point, but we have to start with why. We know that diversity inclusion programs exist, but do we know why they exist? There are metrics that show that corporate performance or companies perform better when they have diverse environments. But what they don't share is 
diversity doesn't mean my face is present. Diversity means my voice is heard and that I'm respected. And those same studies don't show, you know, where the more successful companies that, that are contributing to these metrics and all of these statistics, what that environment or culture looks like. And even like with the work that I'm doing with N18, my goal is to create inclusion and using golf as a medium because what better way to spend five hours across it's not just for people of color. It's more to, to build and bridge gaps between communities because you can't not talk to someone for five hours. Like, you have to have a conversation. It would be really peculiar to be on a golf course for five hours and never get to know a person beyond like, oh, yeah, that's Bob from accounting or whatever, whoever it is. But you have to, when I look at these inclusion programs, it's more about creating cohesive spaces for people to have very natural conversations where they normally wouldn't. You're not going to just walk up to someone and just start talking to them about your life, your children, your family, your gripes, your favorite food. But on the golf course, you can do that. And we need good companies, need good forms for people to bridge and build. And it doesn't work in bars. It doesn't work in spaces. Like there's so many issues to this diversity and inclusion problem that we'll, we'll never really solve. But what I love is that you're really looking at all aspects of what racism does and how it impacts all of these different forms. It's not just finance where racism exists. You see it in media, you see it in you know, law, you see it in education, you see it in the quality of the education that children are receiving in different communities. You see it in so many different spaces and it, it's exacerbated in others because are we not fighting hard enough? Or are we not leveraging our tools? Because I, I feel a sense of responsibility to break that with the work that I'm doing using golf as a medium. How long did you work in corporate America and when did you leave and why? For me, I felt like for the career that I had pursued, my passion was really in golf and bringing people to the game but then also teaching people how to use the game strategically and how to present themselves or put themselves in places where they can influence their careers and really have an opportunity to be their own advocate. Because one of the challenges with like promotion and just moving up, you have to have allies. You have to have people that truly advocate for you when you are not in the room. And you can't have people that are like passive aggressive or that are just, they're, they're smiling in your face and saying terrible things about you behind your back. Like just from a space of integrity, golf is one of them. And I think that there's so many like life lessons in golf that I want to share that with people so that they could at least leverage that for their career. And I left my job to, to focus on that and to build out a business, a B2B company to help corporations create inclusive environments and golf is a medium. It's a professional development tool as well, but the programming that I provide really speaks to inclusion and using golf as a medium, a space where it's not normally inclusive either. When you were saying that, what came to mind is what you were speaking of earlier in terms of just the twist, the unexpected twist that your life took, the journey, just things would happen or they would start to click and make sense. So as you're describing that, I'm thinking about, well, you're in finance, you're having this experience and your passion for golf is growing and evolving along that journey and simultaneously to the point where you're now using golf as a platform to, as you described, early in your journey, you realized that golf was not easily accessible for everyone. Women and people of color were missing. And as a result, you co-founded Black Jewels Ladies Golf Association in New York. I just find that amazing how your journey came to kind of like a, a fork in the road, so to speak. And then you took golf as your passion. What was your experience at first in taking that very brave and bold leap and leaving finance corporate America to pursue your passion? So it's interesting. The Black Jewels was something we were doing like in tandem. So I was still working in finance when that was founded. And What's interesting about that is the journey had continued for me in finance. I stayed in finance. More recently, this, um, the company N18 is the, the actual product of all of those years and all of those observations and all of these different these moments. And 
I knew that what we founded all those years ago, I think it was 2006, nothing had changed. Like these spaces are still not diverse. These, when I'm looking at like my career path and what I had accomplished, I felt like I was having some of the same challenges and, and battles looking at just like, how did I want to present myself and look at the quality of my work and look how hard I am working and what am I doing it for? Does this resonate with me, my spirit and, and where I see myself? And in the end, I think I saw two colleagues die of cancer. And I just remember how it was just, they were easily replaced. I mean, they were spiritually missed, but the job went on and life went on. And I just thought like, if we were given a purpose in life, aren't we supposed to fulfill it? And if we're given a passion and called to do something, shouldn't we pursue it with the same energy that as if time were running out and we had nothing else to, there was nothing else left to do. Well, I love that. I think it's awesome. And I'm super inspired because I feel like when I think about the work that I do in terms of anti-racism, there could be a million people doing the same work and we would still be just scratching the surface. So I feel as though in whatever capacity that we lend our gifts and our talents and skills and passion to breaking down systems of oppression and racism. It's, it's, it's amazing. You answered it. That's it. That's how we fight. We use our voices and our gifts. You're using this podcast to give voice to conversations and spaces around continuing the bill. I'm using God to bridge and we just keep using our gifts and that, that's how we do it. We, we use the gift to fight. So you founded Black Jewels Ladies Golf Association while you were still in your career. However, can you explain to me in 18 and how that evolved and came about so that I can understand like you were doing this and then you left your career and now you're full-time pursuing your passion. Is that exactly. Right? Yeah. So I co-founded Black Jewels with two other people and we were working on that and it was just, it felt good to create. And, it, and when I look back, I still see that like the existence of this, so I'm not an active participant in Black Jewels anymore, but the, it still exists and it still has its community and women still come to the game and come together to play. And it is phenomenal to see. In 18 is, it's, it's my baby. It's the product of seeing companies struggle with inclusion, seeing my own struggles in corporate America and seeing myself at these golf events and still being the only woman, still being the only person of color, and still realizing that or observing that there are opportunities that many people and communities are not. And it's not just like women and people of color. There's just like a whole demographic of individuals that are, you know, you could be Latino, you can be Asian, it, wherever you're from. If you're not at that golf course, you're not even part of the conversation. And I, and I noticed that that was still happening. So 10 years I'm playing and I'm still like LaToya, LJ, you're the LT, T-Money, whatever people want to call me on the golf course. You're, I'm still the only person there. And I felt like I was a, afforded many opportunities and given access to many people and, and I got the opportunity to go to many places just because I played, but just because I showed up. Because in the beginning I was terrible but yet I still got to go to Malaysia and, and play golf there. And I met amazing people throughout these journeys. And it's just because I was physically present on the golf course that people would think of me for other opportunities, like other golf events or outings. And I just remember trying to explain that to someone and it didn't resonate. So I'm like, I feel like the opportunity needs to be explored greater and needs to be focused on as a professional development tool, but it builds inclusive environments because it ensures that people have access to something that they normally wouldn't. It's not about the sport. It's more about you coming out to the golf course, you're spending five hours with someone, four if it's a nice course where there's not a lot of delays, but it's usually about five hours. And the, the time that you spend with someone could be critical and crucial to your career, to building a relationship and you know, people will talk about, oh, deals get closed on the golf course. That's what I know about golf. But what I have also created is a podcast about the conversations that focus on the conversations around golf and how golf has impacted individuals' careers, lives, and the lessons that they've learned by playing or participating or not playing. And so the podcast kind of reinforces the concept of what N18 is doing, which is providing opportunities for 
professional companies to use golf to enrich their careers with their associates and their junior level professionals. That's phenomenal. When I think of team building and within organizations and really trying to get to know one another authentically so that you can be better functioning team and thus produce better, stronger results. What better way than to do something that challenges you in such a different way, gets you completely out of your element. I think that's so awesome. So you describe golf as transformative. How so? Well, I think when people first learn the game, they're very focused initially on like their skill and how they perform. But when you start to absorb what is represented in the game, you learn a lot more about who you are as an individual and who you want to be. So in a moment where you hit a shot and it doesn't go where you want or your performance isn't as great on one day versus another, you have a choice to show up and you have a choice to accept that. You have a choice to work on it and, and really focus on how to improve on the next hole. There's just, there's just so many life lessons. And I think when you really take the time to reflect on how the game impacts you and how each moment in that, during that five hours, how you react and how you accept or don't accept um, failure. And it's not necessarily failure, but don't accept the outcome. And sometimes you have to play the ball as it lies. You just have to do what's necessary to move forward. Or sometimes you have to just put what happened on the last hole behind you. And I think the more you play and the more that you experience that and the more you play with other people and you see how they react, you start to think about, well, who do I want to be? If you see someone and you're playing with them and they're always blowing up and they're always using profanity and they're just like this really high, strong, intense individual, you'll start to think about, well, how do I show up? How do I present myself? And how do, how do I want to be perceived in these moments? And how am I reacting to this? And is this a reflection of how I react to other aspects or react in other places in my life, like in other spaces in my life? Do I react that way? And if I do, why? And I think that golf is such a quiet space. It's like you, nature, the sky, the grass, the ball, the tree, <laughs> some more grass and some sand, maybe some water. Um, but so it's like all of nature's elements. And in these moments, I think you really get to commune with the earth. And if you really take the time and appreciate it, a long-winded way of saying it, that, I, I feel like that's, that can be transformative. I am so inspired by you, not only with golf, but you blaze trails in your undergrad, in your master's program, in corporate America finance, and now golf. That's pretty amazing. And I really want anyone who's listening because what an awesome program. Can you describe if someone involved in an organization, their interest is peaked, like, wow, I would love to get our company involved. Can you describe that process if they were interested in working with you? Sure. Just um, go to the website, which is www.nin-18.com and reach out to me. My information is there. I can share some of the metrics associated with team building, inclusion, and some of the activities that lead to job satisfaction. You know, there are things that we can't always measure a feeling, but we can start to measure retention. And why do teams work well? And why do some teams have a lot of dysfunction? But then we can also look at bridging gaps amongst like senior level and junior level employees and how golf can be a tool to do that as well. And with these outings and activities and events, especially golf events can do. Are you on Instagram, Facebook? I am on Instagram. That's Miss Lady Loves Golf. Two more questions. I'm thinking about you as a young person and thinking about your excitement and eagerness to learn and understand how things work and sense of awe and wonder. And it's so beautiful and innocent in young people. From your vantage point now, what would you tell your younger self if you had any idea of the challenges that you would face throughout your educational and professional career? What would I tell myself? That is an excellent question. I would say keep looking straight. Don't look left, don't look right. Keep marching forward because there's always going to be a distraction and there's always going to be a person that doesn't believe in you or doesn't believe in what you're saying. But if you believe in yourself, that's all that really matters. So keep moving forward. Don't let them bother you. That's awesome. Latoya, what are the roots of your spirit? 
Oh, what are the roots of my spirit? Whew, that is a that is a deep question. I the root of my spirit is in my family, my relationship with God, my willingness to accept that we are called to do and be our best selves on this earth and, and, and make a difference. And we're here to fight for what we believe in and not let anyone silence our, our voice or try to dim our light. And in my spirit is to just continue to be an advocate and fight the fight of just helping people get out of their own way, that's one. But then more so making sure that our communities, the little nerdy girl that loves computers, the little guy that loves golf, that nothing is projected on. So the root of my spirit is to help people find themselves in themselves, hopefully find golf. So beautiful, I'm so touched. And I'm grateful to golf in this moment because now I'm connected to you which is marvelous. And now you're working on a podcast, which is so cool. Can you share with our listeners the details so they can tune in once you formally launch it? The podcast itself is called Tease Me. So T-E-E-S-M-E. And it's on Podbean. So we'll have a release date uh, shortly. So the target date is 2020 for all of the first seasons to come out. The conversations around the intersections of golf, business, and life. I love it. You already have an avid listener. Yes, yes. <laughs> thank you so much, truly. This has been such a treat. Well, thank you for having me.